and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the drag queen and activist Marsha P. Johnson. We have some content warnings before we start this episode. We will be discussing transphobia, homophobia, and transphobic and homophobic violence, including murder. There will also be the use of outdated language and slurs in quotes when talking about trans and gender non-conforming people, as well as misgendering in quotes and swearing in quotes. We'll also be discussing police harassment and violence, imprisonment and abuse in prison of queer people, and there will be mentions of knife and gun violence. We'll also be talking about sex work, including minors engaging in sex work, as well as sexual harassment and assault. There will be mentions of HIV AIDS and AIDS related illness and death. We'll also be talking about homelessness, drug use, abuse and overdose, suicide, mental illness, including forced hospitalization and medication and drowning. If any of that's something that you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out any of our other content. So I wanna talk a bit more in depth than usual about sources before we get into the episode proper. I feel like this is a thing that we say every week. (laughs) (laughs) So we're very lucky in that there are a lot of interviews out there with Marsha herself, which we have on video. And books about Stonewall also provide generally at least a short biography of her, sometimes based off further interviews that authors have done. There is no published biography that's just a book about Marsha. That's so weird. That is incredibly weird to me. Is someone working on one? Not that came up in my research, but somebody might be. Why aren't they working on one? If you're working on one, please get in touch. (laughs) Mm. I feel like people should be doing that now before we lose a lot of, like, primary sources in terms of people who knew her. Mm, Because she was born in the 40s, so, like, the people she grew up with and who are kind of going through life with her are in their 70s now. Yes. Like, we should get on that. Yeah, we should. Yeah. But this is a pressing thing regarding, like, oral histories with the queer community in general, Mm -hmm. but especially regarding trans history. Yeah. yeah. Where, like, a lot of the oral history projects focus on, like, gay and lesbian elders. Yeah. Yeah. And so our trans history kind of, like, falls out of living memory. Mm -hmm. It makes me angry. Makes me real angry. So, as I said, there are several recorded interviews with Marsha, and there are Mm -hmm. also interviews with her friends that have been recorded talking about her. Yeah. So that is luckily a resource that we have. That is good. But definitely more work could be done. Another thing that I referenced is material created by the activist group Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR, which Marsha helped to found. The two main big sources on Marsha's life are both documentaries. One is called Pay It No Mind. That was made in 2012, and it's based mainly on interview footage done with Marsha in 1992 and interviews with people who knew her. That's for free on YouTube, so you can just go and watch that. The second documentary, which was a major source which I used for this podcast, is David Francis' 2017 film The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. So this documentary follows the investigation of Marsha's death by Puerto Rican trans woman Victoria Cruz. It largely focuses on how Marsha's death sits within the wider context of transphobic violence and murders across the USA. So the death and life of Marsha P. Johnson has been the subject of a lot of controversy since Raina Gossett, who is a black trans activist, asserted that France, who is a cis white queer man, had stolen not only her ideas to make the project, but also archival video footage that she had posted on Vimeo. Oh, okay. Gossett herself eventually produced a fictional short film about Marsha in the hours before the Stonewall riots, 
which is titled Happy Birthday, Marsha. Was it Marsha's birthday in the hours before Stonewall? Uh, Marsha's birthday is in August, so it wasn't Marsha's birthday, kind I've of. I've heard about this before, that people sometimes say that they were at her like birthday party or something. So I haven't looked into this in depth, but we'll talk about it in our Stonewall episode, which we will do in a few months, where people say, oh, so-and-so wasn't at Stonewall, they were at Marsha's birthday party at such and such a bar. But Marsha's birthday is not at the same time as the Stonewall riots. So I don't know if she had an early birthday party that year, or if she just decided to have a party and it was referred to incorrectly as her birthday party, or what's going on. Interesting. We'll find out in June. You probably won't find out in June. We'll just talk more about how we don't know in June. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably. So Gossett made these claims about France. France denied the accusations, saying that he'd been working on his project since before he became aware of Gossett's project. And also that, quote, there was room in the landscape for both films with very different stories, methods, and approaches. I feel like these things aren't mutually exclusive. Like, he could have been working on his project before he heard of hers, seen the footage and stolen it still Mm, mm. how do we constitute stealing historical resources like i'm not denying that you know it's possible that he's unethically used someone else's work here Mm. to be clear but if it's just like archival material that should how does she own that Mm. so Raina gossett didn't own the material that she'd posted on vimeo Okay. okay. Uh, some of it was owned by a gay activist who we're going to talk about in this episode. His name is Randy Wicker. Okay. And he had, you know, a lot of footage pertaining to Marsha because he knew Marsha. And he had allowed Gossett to post that online. And yeah. he also has that post online. He has a YouTube channel and stuff. You can go look at a lot of resources there. Other videos, there was one which had previously been up on Vimeo and which a lesbian group which owned the copyright or had some claim to it because I don't know exactly, but I think a member of their group had either taken the video or was prominently featured in the video. And they asked for it to be taken down because of copyright issues. And this was linked to that group's general campaign to erase trans women from the history of Pride. So that was footage of Sylvia Rivera, who is a trans feminine person. I'm not gonna pass any more judgment on her identity till I've done further research. And it was a video of her at Pride talking about the exclusion of trans and gender non-conforming sort of people from the queer movement. Oh, this is a whole thing. Yeah, this is a whole thing. (laughs) So a lesbian group had that footage taken down. Raina Gossett says in a tweet that she stole that footage. I'm not sure exactly the logistics of her stealing that footage and reposted it as a form of direct action against this kind of erasure. Right, okay. And is her complaint about France using it that he recontextualized it or just that he used it at all? Because it seems weird to complain that he used it if, if... Yeah, yeah, she doesn't own it. Yeah. Yeah. And especially well, if her, like, direct action is kind of publicising it. Yeah. Yeah. It seems weird to be upset when somebody does that. Yeah. So it seems, broadly speaking, from what I read, and, you know, maybe there's more evidence out there or more evidence will come to light to contradict that, that France didn't legally steal any of the footage he used. He did source permission from the appropriate copyright holders and so forth. And most of the versions of the footage he used aren't the versions that Rain had boasted on her Vimeo, so they're, you know, often okay. higher quality versions that he'd sourced elsewhere and so forth. What Raina's claiming is more that she did the work to find and collate these videos. Yeah. And France built on the work she had done to create a project that had a much wider reach and received a lot more funding than mm, her okay. project did because she is a trans woman of colour. So basically she's saying that she did a lot of labour 
that went uncredited and that she was unable to share because of, I guess, discrimination because she's a trans woman and a black woman. And okay. Gossip was then able to use that work and kind of... Get greater acclaim for it than Get she greater acclaim okay. for it. So I can't remember if you said, but I presume that he doesn't credit her in any way. He doesn't credit her in any way. And he has said that although he viewed the videos on her Vimeo, he didn't really learn anything new on them and that footage was available elsewhere. Okay. I don't want to go into too much detail about the nitty gritty of, you know, how much he might have got from her and when he saw what footage and who had what idea when and so forth. Is that something that if we wanted to, we could go into though? Like, is it easy or is it possible to reconstruct the timeline of when he accessed what for the first time? Because I'd imagine not. I did read a very long article that does go into this in as much depth as it can be gone into. Okay. I think we can definitely conclude that he was working on a project about Marsha before he knew about Gossett's work. As for when he specifically viewed the videos, I don't think we can say that. I'll link the article on the blog because it was a long and complicated read, basically. What I will say is that regardless of exactly who saw what work when, I do think that Gossett's anger is understandable since the success of France's film and its ability to have a much wider reach, so for example it's available on Netflix and so forth, and the ability of France to gain funding and publicity and so forth represents the wider issue of privilege in the arts where white cis men like France are applauded and receive funding for telling the stories of marginalised people mm, yeah, for sure. where the marginalised people themselves can't find a platform to tell their own stories. Yeah, yeah. And I do think that there's an onus on white filmmakers and what white cis filmmakers I guess in this context and funders to to do more to combat this issue. I'm not going to go into too much depth about what France says he has done to work towards that because it conflicts with what Gossett says and you can do that reading for yourself. It would be a long podcast if we talked about that in depth. All that being said, I think it's worth noting that France did use his privilege to centre the voice and work of Victoria Cruz, who, as I've mentioned, is a trans woman of colour. And if not for his documentary, I wouldn't have been able to find information about her work on Marsha elsewhere. Given Gossett's accusations against France, there have been calls for people to boycott the film, have boycotted it, but I think it would be remiss of us to ignore Victoria's work because of how it came to us. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fair. So I did use this documentary as a source, despite the controversy. That's all I wanted to say about sources. I've only barely scratched the surface of all the issues involved here, and there's a lot more to be said. I do have a few other notes before we start the episode. Oh, God. We've become parodies of ourselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so first, as you've probably noticed, I am using she, her pronouns for Marsha. We're going to talk about her gender later in the episode. Using she, her pronouns is pretty much the accepted norm. I don't yep. think I've ever heard any other pronouns used for Marsha, so I was just going to run with that. Mm. Some of her friends who knew her do use he, him pronouns, just like a couple. Okay. But the vast majority is she have. And then, of course, like, transphobes use he, him pronouns. That's another issue. Yeah, I was going to say, that's where I've seen people (laughs) use he, him pronouns. The other thing I wanted to note was I am going to be using some outdated terminology for Marsha's community. Chiefly, I'm referring to here to the word transvestite, which is not the accepted modern word. For what? That's the question. I see. Is not the accepted modern word for people assigned male at birth wearing feminine clothing. What the reasons for that are, you know, it's something we'll have to talk about in more detail in the episode. I mean, I guess what I was getting at was, is that not a accepted 
current word or is it not the accepted current word for a particular experience? I feel like I have seen this word around to describe specifically people, you know, assigned male at birth who prefer to dress in feminine clothing but aren't linking that to a feminine gender identity. My understanding is that the sort of like experiences of gender within like, you know, quote unquote cross-dressing or transvestite communities is a lot more complicated than... Yeah, 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 yeah. So transvestite is the word that Marsha herself used and members of her community used to describe themselves and we'll talk in more detail later on about exactly who was in that community and you know how they presented and so forth. I could have used a different word for example I could have broken down this community into its individual parts as we might understand them today so like gay male drag queens, trans women, trans feminine non-binary people and so on. Yeah, yeah. Or I could have tried to find a modern way to group them together, such as, as I said a minute ago, people assigned male at birth but presenting feminine at least some of the time. (laughs) Super clunky. That's not going to make a good acronym. (laughs) Aside from the issue of that being a very clunky way to talk about a group of people, I think that doing that detracts from the understanding that these people had of themselves and also the understanding that these people saw themselves as a community with a shared identity, which they referred to as transvestite. Well, again, I have the trans history is not a subset of gay history, but they're intertwined and you need to let us all own it discussion again, aren't we? Yes. So the last thing I want to say before I let us actually do the podcast, as it were. Oh, we're doing a podcast. (laughs) is that we're not going to talk in any detail today about Marsha's involvement in the Stonewall riots. We'll be covering that in depth in its own episode later this year. Guess when? Marsha was born on August 24th, 1945, into a working-class African-American family in Elizabeth, New Jersey. She was assigned male at birth. She started wearing dresses from around the age of five, but she soon stopped because of sexual harassment from the boys in her neighbourhood. Well, that went there right real fast, didn't it? Yeah. People who sexually harass children, like... Are these, like, boys... I'm not sure if they're exactly the same age as her, but they're around her age, yeah. Okay. They're, like, other kids. They're other kids, yeah. From her early teens, Marsha was a regular visitor to New York's queer scene, centred around Christopher Street in Greenwich Village. Her mother, however, believed that, quote, you're gay, you're lower than a dog. When she graduated high school, Marsha says, my mother didn't have to show me the door. She took $15 and a bag of clothes and left New Jersey for New York. She says she was free at last. That (laughs) happened fast. Yeah. There were many queer homeless kids in New York at the time. Probably still are. Oh, there still are. There were many queer homeless kids in New York at the time, including what were known as street queens, who were assigned male at birth and had been rejected by their families because they either were attracted to men or because they were considered too effeminate, and many of these kids belonged to racial minorities. Street queens used a mix of she, her, and he, him pronouns for each other. Some of them would later grow up to describe themselves as trans women, others would describe themselves as gay men, or various other queer identities. How did we end up deciding that gay and trans history was separate? How? How did we do this? They're demonstrably not. (laughs) Well, it's just so, like, obviously historical revisionism. Yeah, like, if you're looking at this, this is not gay history. This is not trans history. This is both. And you can't disentangle them. So many of these kids went by feminine names. And it's amongst them that Marsha settled on the name Marsha P. Johnson. So Johnson is taken from the name of Howard Johnson's restaurant, where street queens used to routinely eat and then leave without paying the bill. Oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, Johnson is not the surname she was born with either. Did Howard Johnson just be like, yeah, fair enough? I don't know how Howard Johnson... Was Howard Johnson even like an actual person running this deal? Or was it like 
One of those restaurants that's named after. One of those restaurants where, you know, it's like Chip's Bar and you're walking, you're like, oh, are you Chip? And they're like, who the hell is Chip? Yeah, I don't know anything about Howard yeah. Johnson or this restaurant, except like that they it. used to eat and not pay. Seems fair. It does seem fair. They didn't have any money. Yeah. Marsha had $15 and she's probably spent it by now. How much is $15 in this time? Um. Well, we'll, we'll tell a later story where she spends $2 on a packet of chocolate chip cookies. So oh, I've heard this story. <laughs> that's about eight packets of chocolate chip cookies. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's not going to last you very long. So, you asked what the P stands for. I did. Once when she was in court, I can't remember if it was on charges of sex work or cross-dressing or what it was, but once in court, Marsha was asked by the judge what the P stood for when she was told to give her full name, to which she answered, pay it no mind. The judge, whose name is Bruce Wright and was known as Turnum Loose Bruce, (laughs) (laughs) had no time for these trivial charges that these people were constantly brought in for, laughed and said, well, that's exactly what I'm going to do, and he dismissed the case. (laughs) That's pretty great. That's what the P stands for. Good, Good job, turn him loose, Bruce. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that wasn't just a one-liner in court. That was consistently what the P stood for. And where did Marsha come from? I don't know where Marsha came from. She originally went by Michelle for a while. Okay. But she decided she didn't like Michelle and she changed it to Marsha. Okay. I don't know why. She just liked it, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe she just heard Marsha and she was like, that's like my current name, but better. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Sylvia Rivera, who's also kind of part of this seen at this time yes. wasn't named Sylvia at birth and was given the name Sylvia by another street queen who basically just said to her oh there's no one called Sylvia around here you can be Sylvia and that was it she okay. was Sylvia <laughs> sure. so somebody might have just said oh hey what name isn't used at the moment take Marsha I feel like given that she was called Michelle before that like there's a, there's a kind yeah. of sound connection there yeah yeah like true. it was like Michelle like feeling it out and then I mean, being like oh no I've got something here. I think like trans people do do that where they're like I really like like Jane Mm. <laughs> so Marsha was in her late teens by the time she moved to New York. I don't know exactly how well, but she's finished high school, so probably 17 or 18. And this was on the older end of age for these street queens. Oh, wow. Yeah, these are very right. young kids. So I see. To give you an idea, not just of their age, but also of their general values and so on. One group formed a gang around 1965 called the Commando Queers. How? Oh, wait, okay. So what letter are the words commando and queer <laughs> beginning with? Or is it unclear and it was just a spoken... It's spelt with C and Q here, okay, okay. but I imagine that it was more commonly spoken than written down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe there were variations. Okay. I yes. mean, maybe it's like how queer as fact crew was spelt with a Q, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've noticed just in looking at these kids' names written down, there's often spelling variations. Okay. So it's quite likely that there wasn't a set spelling for yeah, commando yeah. queers. That makes sense. And it was commando queers. <laughs> So the first rule of the commando queers was that you had to be between age 11 and 18. 11, you say? 11, yeah. Well, I don't care for that at all. Yeah, 11. The rest of the rules were you had to be kind to someone every day. Oh. You had to make sure your makeup was okay. <laughs> you couldn't be dirty. You had to protect somebody who was getting beaten up or who was queer. You couldn't wear bras or girdles and no leather. Oh, okay. Is the leather a, like, animal rights issue or <laughs> do they just think it's, like, tacky? I don't know. Okay. Oh, that... There's so much more to unpack here. Yeah, yeah, that's. I'm glad we clarified the ages of these people before you read us those rules because, like, it does sound like something that a group of kids would put outside their like treehouse or something. Yeah, like that. it yeah. does sound yeah. so juvenile. Mm, yeah, yeah. So Sylvia and Marsha know each other from like childhood, basically. Yeah, yeah. So Sylvia and Marsha met when Sylvia was 11. 
Oh, oh wow, okay. Yeah. Oh. Like, Sylvia is one of the 11 year olds in this context. Yeah, so Sylvia and Marsha met in 1963. So Sylvia was 11, Marsha was 17. When Marsha found out Sylvia's age, she was horrified and basically said, Why aren't you at home? And there's mm. obvious reasons why Sylvia wasn't at home. Mm. Similar to the reasons why Marsha wasn't at home. She also found out that Sylvia hadn't eaten that day, so she took her out for 99 cent spaghetti and meatballs. Aww. And this was the start of their lifelong friendship. How much is 99 cents? Enough <laughs> <laughs> buy more spaghetti and meatballs. Yeah, this was like the lunchtime special at Romeo's, which was the uh, like Italian, fake Italian restaurant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so apparently they pretty much lived off these spaghetti and meatballs. Mm. So yeah, Sylvia says that Marsha was like a mother to her. Mm. Marsha provided her with support and advice, such as getting her a job at Child's Restaurant, where Marsha also worked waiting tables. Child's Restaurant? That is just the name of the restaurant. It's called Child's Restaurant, it has children. And she just got a 11 year old as a job. <laughs> I guess so, I didn't consider that. Is that a like, awful coincidence, or is this just their business model? I think it's an awful coincidence. Okay. She also taught Sylvia how to put on makeup. I wonder what the like kind of like trends in makeup were at the time. You know how now mm. it's like... No, I don't. Winged eyeliner and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't really know. Like, we have photos of Marsha. I'm sure you've seen them later mm. in her life. But, yeah, we don't really have photos of her around this time when she's a teenager. Around what age do we start to get photos of Marsha and Sylvia? I'm not sure. I'm pretty bad at judging age. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> she was photographed the very famous portrait of her in the, like, kind of straightish yellow wig. I don't know if you know it. Anyway, the very famous portrait of her by Andy Warhol was done in 1974. So, like, we have photos of her from the early 70s. Okay. But at the moment, we're in the early 60s, so... Okay. Yeah, I don't know what makeup looked like. I mean, that's something we could look into. But I imagine, like, we could look into what, like, just general early 60s makeup trends were. But... Not like, what queer kids were wearing on the street. That would be such yeah. a fun oral history project to do. Like, just tell me what, like, queer fashion was like when you were young. Yeah. Because yeah. queer fashion is never the same. It's just, like, mainstream fashion. No. As no. we know. As yeah. we know. <laughs> <laughs> and just everyone looks down on themselves like, hmm. <laughs> I don't know how Irene shows queer fashion. It's just, like, its own thing. It's a sphinx with laser eyes. How That's much- queer fashion, <laughs> if anything is. <laughs> So Marsha's generosity to Sylvia is kind of indicative of her general treatment of people. She didn't have anything of her own, really, but whatever she did have, she'd give away. So if somebody saw her wearing something and they said, oh, you know, I like that brooch, she'd take off the brooch and give them the brooch. What a nice person. She's a very nice person. This is a recurring thing of, like, hearing about Marsha. Mm. There's just so many horrifying things that she experiences. But I've never thought about her story as just generally being a very dark one because she just seems so, like, sunny and joyful. Yeah. And I love her. Yeah. She's so good. She's so good. Mm. Her friend James Gallagher describes her as being a Robin Hood figure. That's so good. And he remembers once when he and Marsha had only $2 between them. She spent those last $2 on a box of chocolate chip cookies and then walked down the street giving out the cookies to other homeless people. Aww. I don't understand how you can get a plate of spaghetti and maples for a dollar but it's two dollars for a pack of cookies yeah i was thinking about that when you talked about the spaghetti and maples i was like two dollars for a box of cookies that's like a normal price that you can buy yeah you can still yeah, buy a box of cookies yeah. Yeah. yeah but i can't get spaghetti and maples for one dollar no you can't anyway that's, that's not the point that's not the point let's return to the, the cookies mm-hmm. she gave people cookies another friend augusto machado straight up just compared her to jesus handing out loaves and fishes <gasps> Yeah, all right. Which I like. I'll allow it. So she became like a very well recognized and well known figure in the queer community of New York. 
and they used to call her the mayor of Christopher Street. Street queens like Marta generally supported themselves through doing sex work and generally presented feminine while working. Marta explains that this is why she began wearing dresses again, saying, I found out the prettier you look as a little boy you made up as a girl, that's the most money you're going to make. So creepy. The the child aspect of this. They are kids. Yeah. Yeah, that's horrifying. Yeah. Pretty horrific. So Marta says that part of the reason for this was many of her clients were gay or bisexual men who wanted to pay for sex with someone with a penis, somebody they thought was a man, but they didn't want to run the risk of being seen with a male presenting sex worker. Okay. I mean, with a man, like with a boy. I mean, yeah, that's true. With a boy, yeah. That's a fair point. Others were straight clients who might never find out that Marsha was assigned male at birth. How do you? I guess it depends what they're doing. Yeah. I heard an oral history thing, I think maybe on Morgan M. Page's podcast. Um, What is Morgan M. Page? One from the Vaults? Yeah, One from the Vaults, which is a trans history podcast, which you should go and listen to. About trans sex workers in Canada a few decades ago where like they talk about how they kind of like dealt with situations in which their clients never found out that they were mm. assigned male at birth. I'm trying to think, you know, I was reading about a sex worker also assigned male at birth who clients never found out about this, who had a sort of leather vagina oh. made that they would strap on. They would like talk and then strap that on. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't think Marshall was doing this, but like, that's a thing that people do. Did? Did? Yeah. I mean, I guess I remember the chicken liver boobs or whatever we had the other time. <laughs> this is like... The lamb. Yeah. Yeah, long boobs, yeah. 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 Presenting feminine did also increase the risk of violence for sex workers. The very first time Marshall slept with a man for money, for example, he pulled a knife on her when he discovered that she wasn't a cis woman. This, along with more generalised violence targeted at sex workers, regardless of their presentation, was a recurring theme in Marsha's life. She was once even shot by a client. Oh. oh. Shot where? Shot in, like, the lower back. Oh. oh. Yeah. The bullet was very close to her spine, so they could never take it out. So she just had a bullet in her. <gasps> oh, my God. I think it happened in the 70s. So, you know, for several decades, she just had a bullet in her. I can't imagine she had great access to healthcare. No, that's, that's So, true. like, <sighs> did she just walk it off? Nobody ever mentions kind of ongoing health issues that it caused, but it may not have. Like, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe she got just got super lucky. I mean, super unlucky. Also, she got Mm, shot. But yeah. yeah, I don't know. So overall, along with things like drug overdose, as well as suicide and broader queerphobic violence, street queens' lives were very dangerous and often very short. So one of them, Tommy Lanigan Schmidt for example, says that most of those who he met on the streets died within four years of him meeting them. Oh. Oof. God. So, like, not even out of their teens. Yeah, so not even out of their teens, yeah. Do you have any comparable statistics about, like, young queer sex workers now? No, I looked up some, like, statistics just about trans women now, Mm -hmm. but I didn't look up statistics about sex workers, no. So Bob Kohler, who is a gay activist who acted as a sort of father figure to these kids, says that while doing sex work was the only time that they ever went in drag. Drag is the word he uses here. For Marsha, at least, this isn't true. She began to wear dresses both in her day-to-day life and also as a part of the drag troupe Hot Peaches. So when you say began, Mm -hmm. so... So she was wearing dresses as a very young kid, and then she stopped because of the harassment of the other kids. And once she moved to New York, and she started doing sex work, and she started wearing dresses again. 
So Marsha joined Hot Peaches in the 1970s after deciding that she was sick of Child's Restaurant, where, quote, all the people used to do was sit and complain about their hamburgers. Yeah, customer service isn't ever going to change. Highly relatable. So she decided that instead she was going to become one of the world's biggest drag queens. Okay, ambitious. Yeah. So she stayed with Hot Peaches into the 90s. She even toured to London with them at the one 90s. stage. The 90s? The 90s, yeah. Wow. Yeah, the 90s. She was still a part of it. Yeah, they went to England on a tour in 1990. Cool. What kind of money is this making? From videos I've seen, they look like a pretty low-budget show. Okay. I don't think they're making big money. But they're going to, like, overseas? London is the only tour I'm aware that they did. I'm not quite sure how that was funded or anything. Okay. I don't maybe, know much about it. Maybe they get more famous later on. I don't know. Not really, I don't think. Maybe just some wealthy eccentric just loved them and lived in London and was like, come over, guys. Come maybe, over. Maybe. If you, there is a book about them. There's a history of hot peaches. Which what I, about hot peaches? And there's not a book about Marsha. <laughs> I think hot peaches made a book about hot peaches. Oh, I see. I see. That's fine. Yeah. So does hot peaches still exist as like a drag show? I don't know. Marsha's role in hot peaches was mainly singing. Although, in the words of her brother, Robert, only thing Marsha couldn't do was sing. Horrible. <laughs> horrible. He could not sing. Okay. There are videos of her singing and, like, she can't really sing. I mean, this is this is why they brought in the lip-syncing thing, right? Because whether or not drag queens can sing does not stop them from deciding that they shall sing. Yes. I mean this with all due respect. So in spite of her lack of technical skill, however, Marta had uh, incredible stage presence and she just kind of leaned into not being able to sing and embraced that. Good, 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 good. Jimmy Camasia, and I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, Jimmy ran Hot Peaches. And he recalls watching Marsha, quote, obliterate a song on stage one night. That sounds positive. Oh, he, you, if you read the rest of the quote, like, he doesn't mean it positively. Only to receive enthusiastic applause from the audience who loved it. Oh. Uh, but Jimmy sat down with Marsha after that and went through the song line by line and, you know, taught her how to sing it and improved her singing. And did the crowd applaud more or less after that? I think less. So she did do as Jimmy had taught her for one night and the crowd still applauded, but, you know... Maybe not as enthusiastically. And then following that, she just went back to her regular style of performing the song. I mean, I guess if she had like a sort of comic I can't sing routine going on. Hmm. Yeah, it does sound like there's more going on there than just like not being able to sing. Like, it sounds like she's doing something kind of avant-garde with vocals or something. You can watch videos of her. Okay. And and see. Though people who did see her perform say that her kind of... Stage presence and why it was so good can't really be captured on video. Yeah. Which is the way. That's an unfortunate fact of film. But um, when Jimmy asked her what on earth she was doing and why she wasn't taking his advice, she answered, they like it better this way, which apparently was true. <laughs> so you asked before about what queer fashion was like at the time. Yes, tell me. So now we're going to talk a bit about Marsha's dress sense. So Marsha's style was largely moulded by the fact that she had no money whatsoever. Relatable. Yeah, relatable content. <laughs> So um, one of the outfits that street queens used to wear was what they called the drape dress, which meant they'd get a hotel room, (gasps) take down the curtains, cut the top and bottom off the curtain so they had a tube with lining and curtain, and then step inside, put on a belt, and that was the dress. That's amazing. (laughs) And then just walk out of there. And then they just walk out. Yeah, you could rent the hotel room by the hour, so they'd just get it long enough to steal the curtain, and then they'd go again. That is the coolest thing (laughs) ever. 
I just love to picture whoever walking in there and being like, oh, it's happened again. (laughs) And just getting, like, increasingly uglier uh, curtain fabric and them them just being like, I don't care, this is queer fashion. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Marta would find other clothes at op shops. Um, Americans call them thrift shops. Those shops, you know. They call them thrift stores. Thrift stores. Those things. Or secondhand from friends or from Roche. Her friend Agosto described her ability to find good dresses at the Selvos as an art form. <laughs> she often slept under tables in the flower district of New York, and the people there who grew very fond of her would give her their leftover flowers, which she'd use to decorate her hair. Aww. She'd also sometimes use artificial fruit or Christmas lights. Like, she really went all out. Sometimes this was just her natural hair. Sometimes she'd also wear wigs, which she used to curl with beer cans. Those are large curls, surely. Those are large curls, yeah. yeah. Those are very large curls. When asked later when she started doing drag seriously, Marsha responded, I've never ever done drag seriously. I always just do drag because I don't have the money to do serious drag. And there was a sort of class divide Mm. between people who called themselves drag queens in contrast to street queens who had more money and generally just did drag as a performance art rather than in day-to-day life or for sex work and street queens who we've talked about. And drag queens generally look down on street queens. That being said, drag queen is a word that encompasses both these groups. Yeah, okay, yeah. But if people do make the distinction, that's the distinction they're making. It's a class distinction. So although Marsha originally started presenting feminine because of her sex work, as she says, she also says, when I became a drag queen, I started to live my life as a woman. This leads us into our gender conversation. I see that it's doing that, yes. I was about to say, and what did Marsha mean by that? What did Marsha mean by that? So mainstream modern sources generally describe Marsha as a transgender woman. The New York Times, for example, did a series called Overlooked, where they published obituaries of people who had died and not had an obituary at the time because they were part of, you know, marginalised groups. And they included Marsha in a group of 15 women as part of that series. There are, however, people who disagree with the idea that Marsha is a trans woman. People who disagree with the idea that Marsha is a trans woman generally point to the language that she used to describe herself, specifically the fact that she didn't use the word transgender, which wasn't in common use at the time. I was about to say, people do this thing where they're like, well, they're not using the modern term that we use now for this, so they can't be that at all. Yeah, I mean, people set up impossible standards for people to be regarded as trans. Yeah. And the timeline in which they'll allow actual trans people to exist is so small that sometimes it's like tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. From looking at interviews, the most common words that Marsha did use to describe herself were transvestite, which I've mentioned a little bit, drag queen, or just queen. And she does occasionally refer to herself as a boy, especially when she's talking about her youth. Okay. Okay. I mean, I think this also comes back to what we've mentioned a few times in this episode and a few times recently, where gay history and trans history are seen as being 100% separate things, and if gay history has any possible claim over the thing, if it can justify that at all, then trans history can't be here. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, obviously Marsha didn't conceptualise being trans 100% the same way that I did, or more pertinently, like, a trans woman mm-hmm. today did. But, like, eh, so what? Yeah, yeah. 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 You can't say that she had the same experience or conceptualised her identity in the same way as a gay man today does. Or a gay man then Or a gay man then did. And we will talk about Marsha's understanding of how her experiences differ from the experiences of gay men later in this episode. In an interview in the early 70s, Marsha does provide us with kind of an overview of language of the time and what she understood that it meant, very conveniently. Yeah, that is a really damn convenient. Good job. Marsha says, A drag queen is one that usually goes to a ball, and that's the only time she gets dressed up. Okay. As I mentioned, drag queen was also used more broadly Mm -hmm. at the time. And then she says, Transvestites live in drag. 
A transvestite is still like a boy, a very manly looking, a very feminine boy. Wait, what? Manly looking, feminine looking boy? She said this verbally, so I think that's just, you know. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Right, all right, that's yeah. So I think basically what she's saying is a transvestite presents feminine, but. Is a man. Is. How to express this? Um, I mean, is a man necessarily, or is just I don't know. not? Is a, a boy? She said. Yeah. But, but if we're talking about appearances here, that could encompass cisgender men who wear feminine clothes most of the time, mm-hmm. and also trans women who don't have any access to hormones or don't want to take yeah. hormones. Yeah, yeah, and I think it does encompass both those things. And continuing her definitions, Marsha does talk more about that. She says, finally, a transsexual. Spends mm. most of her life in drag. Mm-hmm. When you're a transsexual, you have hormone treatments and you're on your way to a sex change and you never come out of female clothes. Yeah, there is a really interesting thing you see in sort of like later 20th century sources about queer people, trans people, whatever. We've established that terminology is an impossible hellish nightmare from which we will never escape. <laughs> Where there's like this real divide between like trans people who medically transition and trans people who don't where they're kind of conceptualized as being like two completely different subsets of the population Mm. yeah 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 and i think the way Marsha kind of sees it is transvestites just includes trans people who have not cannot for whatever reason medically transition and transsexuals is those who have or are in the process of Mm. which is also a standard that is sometimes applied backwards onto people in the past today. Or even, I mean, all of people who are alive today of saying, like, well, if you're not going to, like, get on hormones and, like, have these five surgeries, or, well, no, they won't say these five surgeries, they'll say the surgery. <laughs> yeah. Then, <laughs> yeah. Then you're not really trans and, like, the general kind of understanding of that on the trans community is like, no, that's not how anything is. Yeah. yeah. Shut up. Not only because like you can be trans without wanting to have surgery or take hormones, but also because of how difficult access to those things are. Is there any indication that Marsha or like anyone at the mm-hmm. time that you read is differentiating between people who wanted to take hormones but couldn't and people who just weren't taking hormones for whatever reason? So I am about to talk about this. Well, how convenient. (laughs) Because the next thing the interviewer asked Marsha after getting her to define these terms was if she herself would be considered a, quote, preoperative transsexual and when she was considering going through the sex change. Not if, but when. 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 Which Marsha answered, most likely this year. I'm planning to go to Sweden. I'm working very hard to go. Oh. But she never did go. She never did Mm. Possibly, quite likely, she never had the money. I mean, it was an incredibly difficult process to put yourself through. Hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, it's it's obviously, like, very financially taxing now. And any kind of, like, massive change in your life is emotionally taxing and mm. so forth. But I feel like people don't understand. Yeah. And also, just, like, surgery is physically taxing. Yeah, yeah. And, like, yeah. and Marsha has no home, let, let alone no money. After a surgery, she has nowhere to go. Yeah, yeah. So there's many obstacles. But yeah, Marsha usually labels herself as a transvestite rather than a transsexual, although she does mention here that she would like to have surgery. So is the understanding that she would like to, like, is that if she had that surgery, then she would, like, shift categories and become a transsexual? I think that would be her understanding. Okay. So the significance is in, like, not in how you understand yourself or your intentions, but in, Mm. like, what has actually already happened to your body. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. And she also talks about the issues that the people she calls transvestites face, which are unique to them and which may not be faced by transsexuals. 
So uh, chiefly discrimination in employment. So she talks about how if she was able to access hormones and have surgery and so forth, she may be able to find employment in which she was read as a woman and she could be a woman in that job. Is there any indication that she or, like, again, people at the time think of these categories as having connotations of class or race? Or anything uh, like that, similar to the like drag queen, street queen thing. Not that I came no. across. No. Okay. So yeah, she talks about how if she was able to medically transition, she could get a job where she was read as a woman. But if she cannot access medical transition, but wants to get a job where she can be a woman in that job, she can't do that. So she says, I want to see the day when transvestites can go in and say, my name is Mr. So-and-so and I'd like a job as Miss So-and-so. And she adds, but I think it will be quite a while before a natural transvestite will be able to get a job. Okay. 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 Hmm. Hmm. So you spoke about her planning for surgery. Mm-hmm. Does she talk about hormones? I found a mention of her taking hormones. Okay. She does mention that people, street queens around this time, some were taking hormones. Yeah. There is one quote where she's talking to a cis female friend and she's looking at her breasts and says, you know, oh, I've been trying really hard and I've only got these tiny breasts and you've got these enormous breasts. That's unfair. What exactly trying hard involved? I can't say. So uh, regarding what I was saying about employment, Marsha explains that this is one of the main reasons why she was unwilling to seek steady employment and why she never did throughout her life really have a steady job because she would have to compromise her identity in order to do so. Well, that's a clear and strong position. I mean, like a steady job other than sex work or a sex work also not a steady job? I mean, I guess sex work is... A steady job, but a very highly risky job. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. I don't know, what do I mean by steady? <laughs> she, I mean, it's possibly also just it's unreliable income to yeah. some extent. Yeah. She never, you know, wrote up a resume and went in and applied yeah, for a yeah, position okay. somewhere. I just, I guess, wanted to avoid kind mm-hmm. of giving off mm-hmm. the impression that, like, sex work wasn't a real, a real job. job. Yeah, no, that, that's fair work. enough. And I haven't got written down the exact words Marsha okay. used to express right. this concept yet. No, that's a fair point. Like, obviously, it's fine if she was like, yeah, this isn't good enough and i want a job in like whatever Mm-mm-mm. yeah what marta says about sex work varies so there's one mm-hmm. quote where she says oh you know i just went into sex work you know because i could to see if i could because i kind of because i wanted to and there's another quote where she says you wouldn't go into sex work unless you had no other option and this was all you knew how to make money so how exactly she felt about that and her feelings probably changed at times we don't have a clear answer i mean she gets shot so yeah she gets shot she gets threatened with knives on you know her very first day to return to people who make the argument that Marsha is not a trans woman having now covered the terminology she did use people who are arguing that she's not a trans woman generally take this terminology out of context so they'll point to identification as a transvestite to illustrate that she was simply a man who liked to wear dresses ignoring her understanding of that word, which, you know, we've she talked about. She explicitly told us. And they also highlight the word drag queen to call to mind the modern image of a drag queen generally as a performance artist, ignoring the diverse identities of street queens who were also encompassed by the term at this time. I mean, and also ignoring the diversity that exists today. today. Yeah, yeah. In like, the drag community. There are trans women who are drag queens. And there are non-binary people who are drag queens. And and this has always been true as well. So yeah. like when we talked about Stormy a few weeks ago and the drag queens she worked with, some of them were trans women. And that was in... 50s, 60s, 70s? I cannot reiterate enough that if if there were, like, some gay men involved in a thing, then we decide this is gay men's history Mm. and only gay men's history. And that's just not true. Knock it off. (laughs) 
We talked before on this podcast about recognising and dealing with the fact that queer people in the past didn't use the same language to express themselves that we use. But this can be harder to keep in mind and to do as we get closer to the modern day and they are using words that we still use and which might even appear to be superficially similar but which have different nuance and different connotations that we have to Mm. understand and then take into consideration when talking about their identities. So during the 1960s and into the 1970s, there was a general police crackdown in New York on the queer community, which is best known obviously because of the Stonewall riots in 1969. Which we will not be discussing. (laughs) Which we won't be discussing today, but which did continue both before and after that. And this included targeting gender non-conforming people through a New York state law against, quote, being masked or in any manner disguised by unusual or unnatural attire. Well, that was super coded. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Whistle louder, the dogs can't hear you. So police would harass straight queens with questions like, are you a boy or are you a girl? And beat them up, even threaten to shoot them or to throw them in the Hudson River. Sex work was also illegal. Marsha said in 1979 that she'd been arrested at least 100 times for prostitution, after which she stopped counting. She regularly did short stints in jail where queer people were also harassed and assaulted by staff and by fellow prisoners. Not to constantly talk about the last episode in this episode, but if you've listened to both, maybe just keep in mind how similar they are. Mm. And yeah, again, you know, because I tried to make the point at the end of that episode that a lot of the things that Fanny and Stella experienced are very reminiscent of experiences of trans women after their time up until now. Mm, and mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of this episode has like beat for beat notes in the last episode. Yeah. And so yeah. like just saying. So in response to this police crackdown, around nine sixty nine, Marsha became a part of the activist group the Gay Liberation Front, or the GLF. So the GLF promised to welcome drags and transvestites, as they called them. Drags. drags. Yeah, drags. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard that before. Drag that a thing, just like it was a word on its own. I've never heard it anywhere else. <laughs> you are a drag. <laughs> not you are a drag. It's like, oh, you're such a drag. <laughs> I just have no sense here of whether that was like real terminology or whether that was the GLF showing that they were wildly out of touch with the... The drags. The drags, yeah. I think it was real terminology, but I'm not sure. I hadn't considered that. It definitely wasn't the reality, however, that they were as welcoming as they claimed. Cis women, for example, who were in the organisation would tell Marsha and Sylvia that by wearing jewellery and makeup and dresses, they were copying the trappings of female oppression. And also Uh, that they weren't really women since they could reclaim their male privilege at any time. Obviously, that's not true. Yeah, that's all transphobic garbage and I'm glad that no one says that stuff anymore. (laughs) (laughs) On the other hand, however, despite this supposed male privilege, uh, transvestites also weren't welcomed by gay men in the organisations. Marshall believes this was simply a matter of misogyny, saying, a lot of gay brothers don't like women, and transvestites remind you of women. Okay. (laughs) Classism and assimilationist politics of the time were also a factor. Mm -hmm. Gay activist Randy Wicker describes his activism at this time as an effort to convince people that, quote, homosexuals look just like everybody else. We didn't all wear makeup and wear dresses and have falsetto voices and molest kids and were communists and all this. (laughs) (laughs) That list just like wild. Oh man, it just kept going. (laughs) We were nice middle class people like everybody else. God bless America. Oh my god. (laughs) It just went so hard. Um, Randy's a very interesting guy. We will talk a bit more about him. But he does say stuff like this. 
These attitudes also translated directly into the political actions of these organisations. So in 1978, the GAA, which is the Gay Activist Alliance, removed transvestites from an anti-discrimination bill that they were campaigning for in an effort to make it more palatable to straight cis white lawmakers. I feel like there's a lot in here. There's been a lot in here in that sort of gay activist section that you've just talked about of things where I'm like, there are things to unpack here that I honestly just can't really be bothered unpacking because they continue to happen and we talk about them all the time. Yeah, it's just, just like, in oh, yeah. our like everyday lives. Classism. Oh yeah, you know. Oh yeah, okay. the normal gay community transphobia sort of. Mm, mm. Yeah, and I, I mean, not even specific to like the gay community throwing trans people under the bus for greater respectability, but like any given rights movement that you can yeah. think of has done this with a more vulnerable group or a less respectable group. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. sucks every time. So in March's own words. She realised, if transvestites don't stand up for themselves, nobody else is going to stand up for transvestites. So in 1970, she and Sylvia Rivera founded STAR, which, as I mentioned, is the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries. It's a much better acronym than GAR. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is. They actually thought about what word they spelled out. So STAR's main focus was providing housing, food, and legal aid for transvestites and street queens. Marsha was the vice president. Sylvia was the president. And Marsha was known as the queen mother of the group and referred to the other members as her children. Star's first home was in a trailer truck parked in a car park somewhere in Greenwich. And around 24 kids lived in that trailer truck. Oh my god. Um, What's a trailer truck? Just like a... Like a... I understand it's just a truck. This is an American-Australian terminology different in case you're confused, listeners. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't entirely clear if it was like a caravan. Yeah, or like a, a like a trailer that you'd live in in like a trailer park. Was yeah, what I was picturing, but no, nah, it's a truck, like a semi truck. Yeah. But instead of being filled with like bananas or something, it's filled with young trans people. Yeah, I I'm not entirely sure because I... 24 people could live in that much more than they could in like a trailer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I get the impression it was more like a truck. Yeah, as we would call it in Australia, a semi trailer. But I did try to kind of look this up, and I just got very confused right, by well, who calls it what. We don't, we don't need to go into this vehicle terminology anymore, maybe. <laughs> so for a while, they operated out of and lived in this truck. But one morning, Sylvia and Marsha got home with groceries to see that their truck was moving. Oh, oh. Somebody had jumped in the cabin and was stealing it with the <laughs> residents inside. Oh, no. Um, most of them did get out. Hopefully all of them did get out. But there is a story that one girl was incredibly stoned and didn't wake up until several days later when she found herself on her way to California I mean, in the back of the truck. No one doesn't wake up for several days. I mean, I guess didn't. Notice. Really understand what was going on until several days later. I don't know. That sounds that sounds like a lie. It does sound like a lie, but that's the story. Star's next home was an apartment which they rented. It was in an abandoned building. It had no functioning electricity or plumbing. They did manage to fix it up themselves, so they got these things working. Sylvia describes the attempt of her and Marsha and two others to get the boiler working, for example. She says, Four queers that don't know shit about nothing. We're looking at the tools. We're looking at each other. <laughs> we just started taking things apart, putting them back together. <laughs> also relatable. <laughs> yeah, relatable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Marsha and Sylvia continued their sex work to contribute to the house, but they also made it clear that this wasn't expected of anyone living in the house. Members were encouraged to do chores around the house and also to liberate deliveries from outside of supermarkets before supermarkets <laughs> opened in the morning. <laughs> nice. Good, good, good. Which Sylvia would then use to cook up big dinners for everyone each night. Star would even feed and babysit other kids who lived in the area. Mm. 
Surplus money from fundraisers, usually fundraising dancers, was used to pay lawyers for transvestites or street queens in jail. Longer term goals included a 24-hour hotline, a community recreation centre, a school, and a bail fund and permanent lawyer. This is so ambitious and I love it. As well as that, Star had political goals. So this included freedom of dress for queer people and the release of all transvestites and gay street people from prison. It also included free access to hormones and gender confirmation surgery and the right to have your correct gender listed on your ID. And the end of the list of goals in an early piece of Star's writing is a revolutionary people's government. Oh. (laughs) Ultimately, as Marsha said, we believe in picking up a gun and starting a revolution if necessary. Mm, Mixed feelings. (laughs) So politically, they were a very radical group. Yeah, well, this is a depressing thing to think about in 2019. I was going to like, say. Free could... access to all Yeah, I could see your face doing the thing. This didn't help India Star to the other gay organisations that we've mentioned. To quote Randy again. Oh, our friend Randy. Our friend Randy. Randy, giving us an idea of some attitudes to Star, said, It was a bunch of flaky, fucked up transvestites living in a hovel in a slum somewhere, calling themselves revolutionaries. Alright, Randy's dead to me. <laughs> I mean, Randy was dead to me about the point that he was like, all these, like, unrespectable queer people who are child molesters and communists. Yeah, that was like, terrible, but that was just so weirdly, like, personally denigrating. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that wasn't like, oh, for political reasons, we're trying to distance ourselves from that kind of thing, which is still messed up. Mm. That's like, these people in particular are disgusting because they're close to dirt because they're poor. Randy is classist. Randy is Randy. classist. I don't care um, for Randy. <laughs> you're going to learn some more things about Randy later on. Oh no, he is back. I'm interested to see how your attitudes to Randy will shift or stay the same. Well, I'm just... Oh. <laughs> I don't want to go on an emotional roller coaster about Randy of all things in this episode. <laughs> I mean, I guess if Randy comes out at the end of this and is like, look, I was a bad person back then and I've changed. Mm-hmm. Maybe. We'll see, we'll see. Don't spoil us for Randy's character arc. <laughs> because of attitudes like Randy's and the issues we've discussed within gay activist organisations towards transvestites, as well as just the fact that there were finite resources available in these communities, Star received limited support from the broader queer community, and they really weren't able to sustain themselves. So Mm. Marsha and Sylvia were still very young at this time. Sylvia was 19, Marsha was 25. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. And they're trying to look after a household. Like 24 children or something. Like 24 children who not only would be homeless if they leave this home, but they're dealing with issues like drug addiction Mm. and violence associated with sex work and all these kinds of things. You know, Mm. general queerphobic violence when they go out. So they weren't able to achieve all the goals they had set out for themselves and eventually unable to pay rent, they were forced to leave their home. I mean, I feel like even if you had a lot of resources, achieving all of those goals would have still been like wildly impressive. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. they aimed very high. Given they were like, overthrow the government, question mark. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. true, that was the final goal. They continued to operate other activities than their house until 1973, but eventually those petered out as well. To take a bit of a turn, in 1974, the artist Andy Warhol photographed Marsha as part of a series called Ladies and Gentlemen, which featured portraits of largely black and Latina New York drag queens. Marsha's friend Michael Musto says, for Andy Warhol to do a Polaroid of Marsha makes her legendary. Hmm. And this did kind of increase her fame and increase how well she was known. 
Michael adds, she was like the transgender version of a Campbell's suit can, but uh, much prettier. Uh, uh, <laughs> what a weird thing I to say. I'm very weird about this entire thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to tell you some more things to make you feel weirder oh, about cool. it. It's like that whole like portrait project could be a really cool project or could be a really like uncomfortable mm. project. It mm. just depends so much on how Andy Warhol like conceptualized what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. I don't have many quotes from Warhol about what he thought he was doing, and there are quotes out there, but the thing I want to focus on is that Warhol was commissioned almost a million dollars to produce this portrait series. Oh. Marshall was paid $50. Oh. Yeah, I mean, that's not ethical or right. No, that's not right. What the hell, Andy? Something about names that rhyme with... (laughs) (laughs) Commonwealth's episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When Marsha tried to visit a shop where one of Warhol's prints from the series of her was being exhibited, she was thrown out of the shop. Well, there you go. Cool. Give her 10 grand and an apology. I agree. So let's go back to our man, Randy. Oh God, he's back. He's back. Randy lived in New Jersey and living with Randy was a young queer sex worker whose name was Willie Brushes. What? Randy sort of took him in as an adopted son because he was living on the streets and yeah. Mm. Okay. Their relationship seems wholesome. Okay. I th- okay. I don't have any reason to think their relationship was not wholesome. Okay. Okay. I just assumed they were sleeping together. No, I don't think they All were right. sleeping together. Randy has a husband. Okay. Who is also, I think, part of his household. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds quite nice. Then, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Uh, Willie knew Marsha, and Randy kind of encouraged Willie to stay away from Marsha mm. and said that's not the kind of people you want to be hanging around with. But on a very cold winter's night in 1980, Willie said to Randy, look, it's freezing out there. Can I bring Marsha home to sleep here? She's got nowhere else to stay. Randy said, okay. Marsha came home and stayed at Randy's place and she never left. She lived there for the next 12 years. What? what? They became very good friends. Okay, sure. Well, <laughs> they must have had like such a DNM on that first night. <laughs> I don't really know. No, they must have. This is not a historical question. (laughs) There is an interview, uh, Eric Marcus, who runs Making Gay History. Yeah. That's a great project. So he did a whole lot of oral history interviews and now he's making them into a podcast. Did an interview with Randy and Marsh together. Oh. Which you can listen to. And it's in that interview that Randy, I think, makes that comment about Star being flocked up for whatever he said. Yeah. What? Is he talking about it at that time where he was like, this is how I saw it at the time? I think there's an amount of this is how I saw it at the time, but he's not apologetic and it's still quite present. This interview was done, I think, in the early 80s. Okay, so... Yeah, right. yeah. Randy's attitudes... Well, I don't have any explicit quotes from Randy saying that his attitudes changed. I would say they probably have. He was very, very instrumental in keeping up the fight to investigate Marsha's death. If okay. you see footage inside his home today... He's got index cards of all the leads he's followed up. He's got, you know, photographs of her. And as I said, I think earlier, he's got a lot of video footage up on YouTube of interviews he's done with people trying to kind of keep her memory alive and talk oh, about okay. her and so forth. Mm. Right. Randy, <laughs> that was a real turnaround. <laughs> I told you. So what's Randy's husband's name? Uh, Randy's husband's name is David Combs. What are they, like, what does he do? I don't know what he does. Randy runs an Art Deco lamp shop. What? <laughs> How is that a viable business? That's so specific. <laughs> One type of lamp only. I don't know, but he runs it. He runs an Art Deco lamp shop. He and David did have a sort of wedding ceremony. Can you imagine liking Art Deco lamps that much? <laughs> <laughs> I pictured like a 1930s, 40s lamp and I was like, no, I think that's probably an Art Nouveau lamp. That wouldn't be appropriate in his shop. Like, how niche can you be? <laughs> anyway, 
I don't know what David is. But he's married mm. to Randy, and Randy went to the Art Deco lamp shop. Maybe Randy just supports him on the riches <laughs> he makes at the Art Deco lamp shop. Maybe he does. Yeah, he um, supports them all on his lamp income. Yeah. His husband, the child they've taken in, and Marsha. I think they have a dog as well. And a dog, well. <laughs> what kind of name? dog? I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> no, there is a dog that lives in the house, I think. Well, I just don't know what to think. I don't know what to think either. Alright, I don't know. I'm glad that they made their peace together, and if Marsha's fine with Randy, I guess we'll be fine with Randy. So yeah, Marsha lived with Randy and his husband, and the child, and the dog, for 12 years. I guess I'd watch this sitcom. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that'd be a good sitcom, yeah. There's, like, probably some interesting content in there. Oh yeah, I'm sure they have a lot of interesting conversations. Like, they're both... Just in terms of that very, like... A trans woman moves in with homonormative family. Mm, mm, yeah, that's true. Homonormative um, I've never had to use that word before, yeah. and I was so glad it was there at that moment to save yes. me from having to explain the concept. <laughs> so does Marsha just keep working as she has been? Marsha eventually stops doing sex work, but I'm not sure exactly when that happens. Okay. Where does he live? Like, is this far away from her neighborhood? He lives in New Jersey, so he lives, like, right across the river from New York. Okay. I was going to ask you, like, very early in the episode where New Jersey was. Was that where Marsha was born? Yeah, Marsha's yeah. also yeah. from New Jersey. And I was like, no, nah, we don't know, need to know where American states are. Yeah, New Jersey's right next to New York, so he lives in New Jersey, but, like, Marsha gets on the train to New York every day, and that's not a big deal. For the safety of his household, Randy will not let Marsha come and go from the apartment dressed as a woman. Okay. So she gets dressed in the morning and then if it's winter she puts on a big coat or if it's summer she puts on a big shirt over her clothes and she gets on the train that way and then once she's on the train she takes off the coat and she pulls her wig out of her bag and gets changed. Mm. I like how often people will just get dressed on the train. I do this all the time, to be honest. Like, stealthy getting finished on the train. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The one thing is that she can't carry her boots around with her because they're too big and heavy, so when she does it, she has to leave on her kind of big men's boots while she's in her dress. Right, that's a look. Yeah, yeah, it's a look. It's not a bad look. Marsha nursed Randy's husband, David, who I've mentioned through AIDS-related illness. Oh. And she was with him when he died in 1990. Marsha herself was also found to be HIV positive in 1989, and she involved herself in AIDS activism, especially in campaigning against the exorbitant price of experimental AIDS drugs. Mm. Yeah, the American healthcare system sure is bad. It sure is bad. It sure is bad. And its treatment of queer people during the AIDS crisis sure was bad even for it. Hot takes from queer (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not really bringing anything new to the table here. So one thing that I haven't really talked about in this episode is Marsha's romantic relationships. No, this is true. We know she did have relationships with men. I don't know much about them. During the 90s, she was in a relationship with a man named Cantrell or Candy. We're really getting it here. When will Mandy come? <laughs> That's true. We got Randy, Andy, and now Candy is here. You're also not going to like Candy very much. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. So um, it appears that Candy wasn't part of the queer scene. Oh, okay. So he kept Marsha away from other transvestites, and he'd encourage her to stop going to queer bars and to socialize instead in straight bars and hang out with his straight friends and so forth. This is That's why okay. we only have queer friends. <laughs> That's how Candy sounds like a drag, but... <laughs> Marsha refers to Candy in interviews as her husband. Bob Kohler, who I mentioned quite early on, a gay activist who knew Marsha, specifically refers to Candy as her fifth husband. Yeah. Okay. Who the other four husbands may have been, I do not know. Uh, I mean, I think there's a certain thing here, kind of, where 
when there's no sort of legal marriage that any long-term relationship mm. is a husband. Yeah. Where mm. you don't get that so much for a, like... Yeah, if you live together for 20 years but you never get married and you're a man and a woman, then that's not your husband. Yeah. But if you live together for 20 years and you never get married because you legally can't... Then you don't know, is that your husband or not? Yeah. that kind of is your husband. Yeah. I don't know, like, David and Randy, as I mentioned, did have a marriage ceremony, although obviously it wasn't legally recognised. So maybe Marsha and Candy did get married in some way. I don't know much about Candy overall. He was shot and killed by a policeman in March 1992. In an interview in 1992, Marsha also talks a bit about her sexuality. She starts talking about her kind of introduction to what sex was in her early teens, and says at that time, I didn't think people had sex, period. And then she adds... I'm still like that. I think, oh, you wouldn't do that. And she lists a whole lot of sex acts saying, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. <laughs> and she concludes, I don't think like that, but I know they would. What? So Who's they? Just like the general population oh, of people okay. who okay. like to have sex. So, so what she's saying there is she's like, I think about this and I'm like, that's not really appealing, but apparently people like this. Yeah. Yeah. So with that in mind, I want to raise the possibility that Marsha was asexual. Well, I've never heard this before. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, tell me more, tell me more. That comment is based entirely off that quote. I don't know anything more about what sex Marsha might or might not have had outside of work. She does say once that, you know, in her earlier life she thought that the homosexual experience would just be these short, fleeting sexual encounters that she did for a job. Yeah, I don't have any more to say about that except that That is in Michael Casino's documentary Pay It No Mind, which I mentioned is available freely on YouTube and one of the major sources about Marsha's life. And I have never heard anyone mention the possibility that she's asexual. Yeah, no, neither have I. And I googled Marsha P. Johnson asexual once and it's just nobody's talking about it. Oh, okay, well. So I guess that's, you know, how ace history is done. I I have um, talked to an asexual sex worker just like a friend of mine, about this once, who said that they thought maybe they found sex work easier or, like, more of a sort of comfortable job for them because they didn't conceptualise sex as a kind of significant personal thing. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. was interesting. Oh, yeah. And, I don't know, it just came to my mind here. I don't really know how I wanted to link that to Marsha. No, that's a fair point. That may have been an experience Marsha had too. We don't know. The comment I was going to make is much less interesting, which is just that our two possibly ace figures so far are Marsha P. Johnson and Horace Walpole, (laughs) (laughs) who have never been compared before ever in the history of human language. But now they're both here. Now they're both here. Yeah, yeah. I I just think it's a shame that nobody's ever talked about this quote in this context. Hmm. And I hope one day people will start doing ace history and start finding things like that and recognising them as potential pieces of ace history where I think a lot of people have just heard this quote and gone oh yeah whatever move on Marsha's talking about how she learned about sex yeah 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 I mean I think it will kind of come out like ace history will come out to be this thing where it turns out to be fairly common Mm. that like historical figures will talk about their lack of interest in sex but someone's got to put the pieces together yeah but somebody's got to sort of start putting these people into a group you know yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. and i mean it was only like a few decades ago in in classics that someone put all of the sources together for like what what the scholar called homosexuality in ancient Mm -hmm. greece and was like yeah no this was like a thing that had like social norms and so forth yeah that was only a few decades ago and before that people like nah 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 nah." imagine being the person who wrote the first pederasty paper his name was ken 
No, his name was Kenneth Dover. <laughs> proper respect he deserves in his form. He was a great scholar. Yeah, yeah. I think we do say, maybe not on this podcast, I don't know if we've discussed on this podcast, but we do say pretty often that it's very hard to do ace history because it's very hard to kind of find evidence that people weren't interested in something mm. or weren't doing something. It's much easier to say, oh, you know, these people lived together for this many years and, you know, that's a... Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, like, a lot of our sources for queer history tend to be, like, legal in nature. Like, you know, we know about this because so-and-so got arrested Mm, doing that. Yeah. And that's... You don't get arrested for not not having sex. sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. But I do wonder, you know, having come across this, how much of it is actually just out there and, you know... Oh, I'm sure tons of it's out there. Like, I think the major difficulty is just that the ground isn't broken yet, not that it doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've seen, you know... I can't think off the top of my head, but I feel like it's not that uncommon that I've seen people's, you know, personal letters or diaries where they talk about sex Mm -hmm. and sort of express indifference. Yeah, yeah. So this interview that I just quoted from took place in June 1992. On the 6th of July 1992, Marsha's body was found floating in the Hudson River. Oh, I forgot we had to talk about a murder. Her death was ruled a suicide. Mm-hmm. but there's enough suspicious circumstances surrounding it that we're going to talk about that. I mean, a trans woman of colour is found dead is already a suspicious enough circumstance. Yeah. yeah. Regardless of anything else. anything else. Yeah, yeah. And police definitely did not give it the investigation they should have, regardless of, you know, the circumstances or whatever. Mm. Police didn't care. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like ruling it a suicide there is a very kind of easy way out. Okay, there was no one else involved. She's dead. We can stop thinking about this. Mm, Yeah. In her investigations, Victoria Cruz does get her hands on the autopsy report, and it says possible homicide on the autopsy report. And they just decided no. And they just went, we're not dealing with that. Suicide. Move on. Was her death by drowning? Her death was by drowning, yes. Okay. She did drown. So broadly speaking, there are three likely causes of death. The first, maybe not so likely, is suicide, as it was ruled by the coroner. Marsha did suffer from mental illness throughout her life, which I think, you know, kind of made it easier for them to say, oh, she just killed herself. But her mental illness generally manifested as psychosis and her friends deny that it led to her being suicidal and they say that she was not suicidal in the time leading up to her death. The other piece of evidence is that she was giving away her belongings, which, you know, is something people sometimes do before they kill themselves. That she has done this constantly for her whole life. Marsha's Mm -hmm. always been giving away her belongings because that's just what she does. Yeah. The second possibility is that Marsha was the victim of queerphobic violence. So several witnesses have given evidence which points to this. On the night of the 4th of July, which is the last night when she was seen alive, one witness saw Marsha get into a car with a group of men who were harassing queer people in the area. Later that night, another witness saw her walking towards the river, obviously terrified and being followed by two men. And a third saw her by the river with a man named Michael, who was known for harassing queer people, and who later boasted about having killed her. Well, well, what's the question here then? Uh, there is another option of how she could have been murdered, basically. Oh. Oh. Which we will talk about. Okay. But yeah, all this evidence existed at the time. It was given to police and they ignored it. And now when asked, they claim they never received this evidence. Right. This is why the police shouldn't be a prey. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. The final possibility is that Marsha was killed by the mafia. What? Well, the mafia was really involved with, like, the queer thing. Mm. Okay, okay. Because homosexuality was criminalised and, for example, things like same-sex dancing were illegal, you couldn't serve alcohol to gay people and so forth, a lot of the kind of underground bars were run by the mafia. 
Hang on, you couldn't serve alcohol to gay people, or just you couldn't have a gay bar? You like, couldn't sell alcohol to gay people. What? That was what the state liquor licensing laws said at the time in New York. Oh, that's bizarre. I don't have the exact wording in front of me, but that was the law. So yeah, because queer bars were illegal, the mafia saw this opportunity to operate these bars. Yeah. And there was a very tight connection between the mafia and the queer community. So Stonewall, for example, was a mafia-owned bar. Mm. So in the months leading up to Marsha's death, Randy was investigating the links between the Christopher Street Festival Committee, who organised Pride events, or what we now call Pride events, I don't know if they were called that at the time, and the Mafia. He was mainly concerned that the Mafia was profiting off funds ostensibly raised by and for the queer community. Specific targets of his investigation included the committee director Jacques Garon and one of the organisers, Red Mahoney. Randy tried to involve Marsha in his investigations and in his campaign to kind of deal with this, but she refused, saying, and we have this on tape, that that was the sort of thing that gets you murdered. Okay. Following her death... On July 28th, the Anti-Violence Project, which was a group investigating her death, a group that deals with queer violence, took a phone call, we don't know who this was from, which said, tell Randy to leave Jacques Garon, Red Mahoney, and there's a third name which she can't quite catch, alone, or what happened to Marsha Johnson will happen to him. Ooh. Well, there's some pretty solid evidence here. Mm, one, one murder or another. Once again, the anti-violence project says they passed this evidence on to police. Once again, police claim now that that never happened and they have no knowledge of it. So in 2012, thanks to the lobbying of queer activists, the case was reopened. The cause of death is now ruled unknown and the case I, remains I open. I feel like I know it. <laughs> I feel like I know it too. I don't know who did it. But, but you I know it. No, she didn't just fall in the river. At the place where Marsha's body was pulled from the river... The homeless people in the area created a memorial from bottles and flowers, which remained in place for about five or six months after her death, and there's now a plaque there. Looking at the diverse group of people who gathered around this memorial, Randy said, I'm sure Marshall would be more touched by this than the fanciest mass at St. Patrick's. At her funeral, people were turned away from the church because it was just too full for them to get in. Was she religious? She was religious, yeah. yeah. Okay. She was raised an Episcopalian. I learned about Episcopalians the other day. Somebody told me what they are. Apparently they're, like, religiously quite similar to Catholics or Anglicans, but there's no, like, head figure of the church. Oh, okay. Huh. There Um, you go. So, yeah, she was raised Episcopalian. She was also very interested in Catholicism, and that was kind of the major religion she turned to in her adult life. But she generally had a very kind of broad attitude to religion. And she'd visit all kinds of churches and houses of different religions and so forth. In Star House, when they were in that apartment, they had an altar to a variety of saints um, that they saw as kind of being relevant, pertinent to them. I'd be interested to know which ones. Um... So St. Barbara is one who they identified as a patron of queer people. Oh, that's really cool. St. Martha, who is linked with transformation. Yeah, They also saw it being very important. The Archangel Michael was also one. I'm not quite sure what the significance of that is. So yeah, Marsha was very religious. So to return for a moment to Marsha's gender and her place in queer history, I can't conclude for sure whether had she lived until today she would specifically call herself transgender, and I don't think that's relevant. I think what's more important from our perspective is that while, say, white cis gay people have had great advancements in terms of rights and so forth since this time, there's a very strong continuity between Marsha's experiences and what many trans people, especially trans women of colour, are experiencing today. And as you've mentioned, we're experiencing in the Victorian era. 
Mm. So homelessness, sexual assault, police violence, all these things we've talked about continue at an alarmingly high rate within this community. So, for example, in 2011, a survey of the US population found that while about 0.17% of the general population are homeless, 1.7% of trans respondents were homeless and 13% of black trans respondents were homeless. Of the 28 trans murder victims in the USA in 2018, 27 of those were women and 27 were people of colour. Especially regarding hate crimes, the misgendering of trans women by their families, by the media and the police when talking about these crimes also makes it difficult to identify these people as trans and to kind of gather accurate statistics Mm. and therefore recognise and deal with this pattern. So taking the issue of martial identity into today, if we only decide we're going to acknowledge trans women if they've jumped through these impossible to jump through hoops so you know accessing expensive medical hormones or treatment or so forth or using specific terminology which certain people have deemed to be the correct terminology then we contribute to this problem by continuing to place barriers between trans people and recognition of the patterns of oppression that they have faced historically and are continuing to face today i sort of want to say or I guess reiterate something that Eli said before because I think it's better to end on a note that isn't so much about oppression Mm. and I know Eli said early on in this when you did all the content warnings in spite of all the horrible things that Marsha went through he kind of always thought of her life as very positive yeah that's a fair point and I think she consciously made a decision to Mm. always be a very positive person and always present a very positive face and treat other people well to combat what she did experience in her life that's enviable strength of character yeah Mm. with that we've been Queer as Fact I'm Ellis I'm Irene I'm Eli if you want to find more of our content you can find us on social media on Facebook Twitter and Tumblr as Queer as Fact and you can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com you can find the rest of our episodes on Podbean on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts if you do find us on iTunes we'd really encourage you to rate us and leave us a review to help us reach a wider audience We'll be back on the 1st of April, which is our second anniversary, when Jason and I, in honour of its final season, will be talking about queer representation in A Game of Thrones and in the book series it's based on A Song of Ice and Fire. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.